Once again, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope. Last week, uh, Jonathan kicked us off um, on this series on Jonah. Um, and so we started off, we're in Jonah 1. We're working through Jonah 1. We're continuing to check through, uh, trek through Jonah 1. And today I wanted to focus on um, the fear that Jonah experiences in Jonah 1 and how that really distorts um, his view of God, his view of others, and his view of him, his, himself. His view of God, his view of others, and his view of himself. Fear is a powerful thing. Any, for any of you who have been struck with, a, with a, a bout or an instance or an experience with great fear, you know that fear can, can be all-consuming. It can, it can change how you act. It can change um, fundamentally how you operate. Um, I think back to a scary experience that I had uh, in middle school. So I was in seventh grade, and uh, my... Uh, my school, my middle school, was sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade. That was the way that our that our school operated. And um, I was at lunch, and it was in fifth period in a nine period day. And um, it was my table of like seventh grade dweebs, and then there was like the eighth grade bullies like right behind us. It was very stereotypical. It was like like an Adam Sandler movie of sorts. But anyway, so. Uh, so the bullies, these tough guys in eighth grade, were sitting, were sitting behind us. And our cafeteria was actually connected to the teacher's lounge. Uh, and I don't know why they did this, but basically one of the music teacher, the chorus teacher, he was coming out of the, of the teacher's lounge. And as he's walking out, one of these eighth graders takes a banana and throws it across the cafeteria and, and hit the teacher in the, ch- the banana hit the teacher in the chest. So this teacher is furious, and he just sees the banana that came flying from our direction, so he walks towards us. He walks to our table. So he's standing, hovering over our table, like, who, th- who threw this? Like, you know, you guys, I'm not leaving until you tell me. And we're just in this, like, we're just sitting there in silence because we're really, I mean, if you think about it, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's either we get in trouble or we tell the eighth grade bullies, and that's an even worse scenario, right? And so, so we're sitting there, and he's not giving up. He's like, look, I'm not going anywhere until you tell me who threw this. And so I'm like sitting, uh, sitting down, and we're all silent, and I just crack, and I just go, this. <laughs> And I, like, pointed behind me to, to the eighth graders. And so he goes, okay. And then he, like, walks over to their table, and he takes them outside. And the, he takes them outside, and he's, like, grilling them. And they are looking into the cafeteria at me. Just They might as well have been going, like, like, like so, um, so basically that whole rest of the day, period six, period seven, period eight, period nine, I am in tunnel vision, just looking at the clock. <laughs> like, I'm not paying attention to anything in class. I'm just consumed with fear that I'm just going to be confronted by these eighth graders. Like, I'm, I'm in the hallway, and I'm, like, taking an alternate route to class, like, that I didn't need to take, like, around the whole school just so I don't run into them. And so after ninth, now, I'm not going to leave you guys on a cliffhanger. This is, this is 100% true. Um, some of you guys know Frankie, who leads worship here sometimes. Big guy, has a big black beard. Um, he, I was actually best friends with him in middle school. 
And when he was in middle school, he was as tall as he is now and, like, 200-plus pounds. And this, like, when he was in high school, he, like, set the deadlift record for the football team. Like, he was a big dude in seventh grade. And um, I was not. <laughs> and, um, and, and, like, a, so ninth grade comes, or, sorry, ninth period comes. We're let out, and I'm trying to get to the bus as fast as I can. And one of the bullies at the table sees me in the hallway and, like, basically confronts me. And like a thief in the night, out of nowhere, Frankie comes out of nowhere and gets between us and is like, don't touch him. And he's like, all right, man, we're cool. We're cool. Like, don't worry about it. And like, that was it. That was settled. And I was like, oh, gosh, I'm so lucky. But, but that whole day, fear just gripped me. And it, it, it completely took me over. I didn't act the same. I didn't pay attention in class. I went a, literally a different route to class. Fear fundamentally changed me that day, right? And I think in this passage, we see Jonah experiencing a fear that, that really, as I said, we're going to look at how fear, it distorted his view of who God was. It distorted his view of others. It distorted his view of himself. So we're going to start with, with how it affected um, his view of God. And the first place we go to um, is where we started last week, which is in Jonah 1. And if you turn to page 7, 74 um, in your hardback Bibles. Um, that's where you can find Jonah 1. So I'll give you guys a chance to turn there. But um, we're going to start, we got to start in verse 1. We're going to work through, uh, we're just going to kind of quick review a little bit of what we went through last week. Um, but we start in verse 1, and it goes like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. And so in this passage, we see that we have this character who this whole series is going to be centered around, and his name is Jonah. He was a prophet from the Hebrew people. And as a prophet, God spoke to him directly and gave him a message, a message for um, both the people, but also um, in this instance, he gave him a message for, you see, the Ninevites. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. What does that mean? Well, that means, basically, if you look historically, Nineveh was the capital of an empire called Assyria, the Assyrians. And um, in Assyria, they were an extremely violent and oppressive empire. So Pastor Jonathan covered this a bit last week, but when they would conquer another tribe or another group of people, they would behead people, they would torture people in gruesome, gruesome, unspeakable ways. Um, really stuff you don't even, you'll never, like, you don't even see today. Like, they would just do completely medieval stuff to people. Um, and um, ultimately, uh, Jonah <laughs> was called to actually go and call for them to repent from all of this evil oppression and these evil things that they were doing. And so, um, in order for Jonah to be obedient to this command that God gave him. It was, a, it was a scary thing. Like, you can't really blame Jonah for being afraid of being obedient to God's command. And a lot of the times for all of us, we need to understand, a lot of the times obeying God could be scary. It's not necessarily going to be smooth. Sometimes there's going to be consequences, right? Um, you know, I think about, and I've told this story in New Hope before, but I think about, um, I had just become a I became a Christian when I was a freshman in college. 
And like right after that, I had a Spanish final. And, and so I'm just recently starting to walk with the Lord. And I actually, I cheated on my Spanish final. And after cheating on my Spanish final, I just felt this conviction that I should confess to my professor, which would mean I would probably fail the class, right? And so I'm stuck between, you know, okay, like, I got to do, like, God wasn't letting me go on this. Like, I just was overcome with conviction that this is what I needed to do. And so in that instance, obedience, right, was a scary thing. And that's the case for us a lot of the time. You know, there, uh, there could be times where you feel like, you know, God gets a hold of your heart, you feel convicted about something, and you need to confess something to someone you love. That could be extremely scary. It might hurt them, right? Sometimes there, it could be a matter of you're convicted about integrity in the workplace. And in order for you to follow Jesus and continue in your workplace, you know, you may have to go against the grain of the culture of cutting corners, so to speak. And that could be scary to, in, in your workplace to do something that's culturally normal, right? So, so a lot of the times, obedience can be scary. But I've heard this said, and, and I, I think it's so on point, um, a mark of maturity, one of the marks of maturity in our walk with God is the gap of time between us hearing a command from God and us following it. I'm going to say that again. A mark of maturity is the gap of time, the time between it, us hearing a command from God or feeling convicted about something and us actually going ahead and being obedient. Right? And we see in this instance, Jonah completely lacks maturity because what did we find out last week? Well, verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish, which is Pastor Jonathan outlined last week, is more than a thousand miles in the opposite direction of where God was commanding him to go. So he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah, in this instance, he let fear get the best of him. And the fear of obedience, the fear of him obeying God's command, actually led him to flee from the presence of God. Now we should take note of this. Jonah's disobedience caused him to flee from God's presence. Now we believe that God's salvation, our, our adoption into God's family, is not based on anything we do. And there's nothing we could do that could separate us from the love of God in that relational sense. But just like any relationship, when we're disobedient, that disrupts our fellowship with God, right? And so right here, Jonah's fleeing the presence of God, or he's trying to. You can't flee the presence of an omniscient God. It's very ironic. But, um, it, you know, for us personally, we'll experience that. When we, when we actively and intentionally disobey God, we'll experience that. We'll experience this disruption in our prayer life. We'll experience this just off feeling where we don't feel like we are right with God. And that is what Jonah um, is experiencing now. Um, and so he feared trusting God in this instance. Um, he thought that God didn't know, you know, what was best for him, and, and, he, and he went in the opposite direction of where God had commanded him to. But what we see in the next verse is that Jonah was actually just punting on one frightening experience for another, right? So let's go to verse 4. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. 
and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So Jonah was now not afraid of obedience, but he was afraid of the consequences of disobedience. Well, how do we know that Jonah was experiencing fear? He was asleep. Maybe he was just tired. Well, the verses preceding the, preceding the verse that say that he's asleep says that they were on a ship that was about to fall apart. There were sailors who were mariners, they were seasoned sailors that were freaking out. They're crying out to the heavens for this storm to, to, to cease. They're throwing cargo off the ship, right? And, and so it's not normal that Jonah's sleeping in this instance. There's something going on there. Well, one commentator says, and I believe that it's really on point, um, is that Jonah was experiencing the deep sleep of sorrow. What do I mean by this? Well, um, Jonah, overwhelmed by the circumstances around him, has nowhere to flee, right? He tried to flee. He got on a boat. Now he's on a boat. Where is he going to run, right? And so in order to avoid the circumstances and the reality of things, he takes a nap. This is something that I think a lot of us have done before. You're so overwhelmed that you just want to stay in bed. You're so broken up about the situation. You don't want to deal with it. And so I'm just going to pause for a minute, go to sleep so I don't have to deal with that. This is what Jonah is doing right now. He's so overwhelmed that the only place for him to run is to literally just go to sleep so he doesn't have to deal with it. I think it's the same impulse that we see. Have you ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? Um, Basically, Shawshank Redemption is a movie about a prison, and there's this warden who runs the prison, and he's kind of like the antagonist of the whole movie. Um, But as we go through the movie, we find out towards the end that this whole time, he's been this guy who everyone thought was, was righteous, was actually embezzling funds from the prison thousands of dollars. And the police, in one of the final scenes of the movie, are driving up to the prison. And he sees them from out of his window, and there's nowhere for him to run. And so he's so, he doesn't want to face the circumstances in front of him. He doesn't want to face the consequences of his wrongdoing. So he ends up committing suicide. And I think that's the same impulse that we see in Jonah. He has nowhere to run, so he goes to sleep. He's afraid of the consequences of his sin. I think also this is the same impulse that we see in Adam in Genesis 3. I think Jonah reflects Adam very much in Genesis 3. Um, right after Adam, uh, the, the first human commits the first sin, in his shame, we see in verse 9, the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam didn't want to be exposed. He didn't want to deal with the consequences of his sin. And so I think Jonah is both avoiding the natural consequences, the fact that there's this crazy storm and people might die because of what he did. But I think he's also afraid of facing the spiritual consequences. I think he fears judgment, just like Adam. Right? Throughout the rest of this story, he, he doesn't pray. All of these, these sailors who don't worship the Lord, they're, they're all praying, right? But, but Jonah doesn't pray once. And we'll find out next week what he actually does to resolve this whole situation. See, Jonah, Jonah was experiencing something which, which many of us experience when we're facing guilt, um, when we feel condemnation. See, Jonah, just like Adam, felt that in, if, if he was fully known, he couldn't be fully loved. He wouldn't be fully accepted by God. He, didn't, he couldn't reconcile the tension because he didn't understand God's mercy, um, which we, we'll find out uh, later in the book. 
that there, there's this tension that he's experiencing between being fully known and exposed and fully loved by God. But the gospel, God's mercy, resolves this tension. This is at the core of what Christians believe. And if he truly knew the character of God, he would know that he didn't need to run from God in this instance. He could trust him, and he didn't need to fear his judgment. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you guys a brief story just to, uh, just to illustrate this. I feel like it really illustrates this notion of the core of the gospel and this idea of being fully known and fully loved and not fearing God in the middle of our guilt. Um, it's a story about a czar from Russia. His name is Tsar Nicholas. And um, Tsar Nicholas, um, he, he had a friend who was uh, an official um, in the military, and um, his friend got sick. And when he got sick, he was very close to this guy, and he said, you know what, I will, I'll make sure that your, your, son, your son is okay. You know, he had a son who was, who was an adult, and he said, you know, I'll, I'll give him a job as a bookkeeper, I'll make sure he's taken care of, I'll watch over him, right? Okay, so... Um, Tsar Nicholas of Russia often used to wander about his military camps and barracks, clothed as an ordinary officer, in order that he might know without being known what was going on. Kind of like a secret boss type situation, right? Late one night, when all lights were supposed to be extinguished, the Tsar was making one of these tours of inspection. He noticed a light shining under the paymaster's door. This was the son of the official. And quietly opening it, stepped inside, intending to have the offender punished. A young officer, son of an old friend of the czar, was seated at a table, his head resting on his arms and sound asleep. The czar stepped over to awaken him, but before doing so, noticed a loaded revolver, a small pile of money, and a sheet of paper with a pen that had fallen from the hand of the sleeping man. The light of the little candle let the czar read what had just been written. And in a moment, he understood the situation. On the sheet of paper was a long list of debts, gambling and other evil debts. The total ran into many thousands of rubles. The officer had used army funds to pay these reckless debts off. And now, having worked till late into the night trying to get his account straight, had discovered for the first time how much he owed. It was hopeless. The pitifully small balance on hand left such a huge deficit to be made up. On the sheet of paper below the terrible total was written this question, who can pay so great a debt? Unable to face the disgrace, the officer had intended shooting himself, but completely worn out with sorrow and remorse and having drank to build his nerves up to shoot himself, he had fallen asleep. And as the czar realized what had happened, his first thought was to have the man immediately arrested and in due course brought before a court-martial. Justice must be done in the army, and such a crime cannot be passed by. But as he remembered the long friendship with the young officer's father, love overcame judgment. And in a moment, he had devised a plan whereby he could be just towards the army and yet justify the culprit. The czar took up a pen that had dropped from the hand of the wearied, hopeless offender, and with his own hand answered the question with one word, Nicholas. Yes, the czar himself, Nicholas, could pay that debt and voluntarily undertook to do so. The young officer waked soon after the czar had gone and took up his revolver to end his life. But as he did so, his eye caught the answer to his question. In bewildered astonishment, he gazed on that one word, Nicholas. Surely, such an answer was impossible. 
He had some papers in his possession which bore the genuine signature of the czar, and quickly he compared the names, for it seemed too good to be true. To his intense joy, yet bitter humiliation, he realized that his czar knew all about his sin, knew the utmost of his mighty debt, and yet instead of inflicting the penalty he, de- he deserved, had assumed the debt himself and justified the debtor. Joyfully and peacefully, he laid down to rest, and early the next morning, bags of money arrived from the czar, sufficient to pay the last cent of so great a debt. And so in this, in this story, we see a picture of the Christian gospel. We, Jonah, just like this officer, are guilty. We owe a debt to God that we cannot pay. And we experience that alienation from God on a regular basis. We experience that guilt. We experience that feeling of condemnation. And yet, God, instead of, instead of directly bringing justice to us, became a human being, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, and on the cross, we believe, paid the debt, just as the czar paid the debt for this officer, of our sins, a debt that we couldn't pay. And so, for us, when like Jonah, we are, when we fall, when we fail, when we run from God, we don't need to fear judgment. We can simply come to God freely and fully because of the debt that Jesus paid. We can be fully known and fully loved at the same time because of the cross. It's this mercy that actually frees us to truly deal with the darkness inside of our heart, to deal with the depths of our sin, right? Without this mercy, we are unable to really face the, face ourselves, face our true selves and, and, and face God. We, too, just like Jonah, fear judgment and try to run from God. And so there's a great healing that comes from this mercy. And if Jonah knew this mercy, if, if, if he, he would know that he didn't need to fear God at any point of it. Yet, he let fear distort his view of God and um, as we'll see, that affected, um, that, that affected a lot. So, <clears throat> fear distorted his view of God. Secondly, fear distorted his view of others. Uh, verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. So Jonah, running from his assignment to preach to these, um, these Ninevites, the first person that he now encounters is a Gentile. What I mean by Gentile is non-Hebrew. Pagan, what I mean by pagan is that he worshipped ancient Near East pagan gods. So Jonah encounters this Gentile pagan sailor trying to save the ship trying to make right the situation. While Jonah's avoiding all of this and avoiding crying out to God, here he, the first person he encounters is this pagan Gentile sailor who is acting much more admirably than he is, trying to work together with everybody else on the ship, working for the common good. And so this would have been jarring for Jonah, right? Why? Well, at first, when we read the first few verses of Jonah, we, think, we see a very rational fear that Jonah had of going to Nineveh, right? Last week we talked about this. We, we saw how dangerous, how, how oppressive the, the Ninevites were, how evil 
they were, right? And so it was rational for him to fear that. However, if we fast forward to Jonah 4, we'll see that actually Jonah didn't just fear the Ninevites. See, what we find out in Jonah 4 is that ultimately, spoiler alert, Jonah actually does end up getting to preach the Ninevites. And we're going to find out more about that in the weeks to come. And the Ninevites, all 120,000 of them in this city, all repent. They all turn away from their evil. They, they collectively and corporately repent of their sin and their violence, right? This should be amazing. Jonah should be excited. Jonah should be filled with joy. He fulfilled God's mission, right? He did a good job. He was successful, and God used him to turn this whole city back to him. But what do we see in Jonah 4? We see that Jonah's miserable when this happens. He's angry at God. So don't, so if Jonah just feared the Ninevites, then, I mean, he would have seen in that moment that his greatest fear didn't happen. The Ninevites didn't, you know, cut him open alive. The Ninevites actually repented, right? However, Jonah's miserable. So he didn't just fear the Ninevites. That's not the only reason why he ran from this assignment and this command. That's not the only reason that he ran from God. He ran because he didn't just fear the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. See, Jonah, what happened in Jonah's heart is something that happens to us, to us. You know, you're, you're wronged sometimes. Um, you are let down. You're disappointed by another person. And all of a sudden, there's a slippery slope between a rational disappointment or a rational pain to actually hating and having bitterness to this person. Someone does something wrong to you, and now all of a sudden, they can't do anything right, right? They are now the worst caricature of the worst views that you have of them, right? I mean, you know, you think about, you hear that someone who has wronged you has, has maybe done something wrong again, you go, oh, they would do that. They would do that, right? They're just this bad character, right? right? And this is what happened with Jonah and the Ninevites. He experienced great oppression, great persecution, but it didn't cause him to just fear the Ninevites. It caused him to hate them on a wholesale corporate level. This whole group of people now became completely evil. He, he hated them. They couldn't do anything right, and the best thing that could happen to them if God just brought his judgment down and punished them. And even if, even if they did repent, God, how could you let that happen? How could you let them turn? How could you have mercy on these people? And so what God does is God sends him, this Gentile pagan sailor and this group of Gentile pagan sailors, to him to, to, to kind of really circumstantially rebuke Jonah. And through Jonah, rebuke Israel for their own hatred of those outside of their tribe. And so what we see in this passage is that God actually has a desire. Um, God has a deep desire for us to if we truly understand a few things that are true about the gospel, one, that all people are made in God's image, right? So those Ninevites, we'll see in Jonah 4, the rationale that God uses to rebuke Jonah is that God made them. They were his creation, right? So why shouldn't he have mercy on them, right? He's the one that gets to call the shots of who has value and who doesn't, right? Secondly, if we see that there's such a thing as common grace, which God bestowed on these Ninevites, 
And these sailors, that even though they didn't have a covenant relationship with God, they had the ability through God's common grace to act admirably in this situation. And then thirdly, if we understand the mercy, the mercy that God has had on us, no matter how evil someone is, no matter how evil a group of people are, there is no possible way that if we truly understand the mercy of God, that we will fail to have mercy on others that we will fail to honor them and respect them the way that God would have us, right? Now, here's the thing. That's very challenging. That's very counterintuitive. A lot of the times, it's irrational. It didn't rationally make sense for Jonah to actually, like, bring God's mercy to these Ninevites, but God was calling him to do something irrational in light of his truth and in light of his presence, right? But the fear that Jonah had caused him to have a distorted view of others. See, one of the litmus tests that we see of the gospel is that if we truly understand the gospel, if we truly understand God's mercy on us, we will have mercy on others. He who is forgiven much, he who is forgiven much, forgives greatly. If we truly understand the gospel, in James it says that we're going to have great respect and service to the common good of all people. That's what it says in James. See, in Isaiah that God bestows common grace on all people, right, regardless of if they're part of our group or not, right? And so we have to see that God was doing something intentional with Jonah in this passage and that Jonah was, had this distorted view of others because of fear. Okay, so he had a distorted view of God. He had a distorted view of others, but he also had a distorted view of self. Verse 8, so they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So here, these, uh, these, these sailors are all gathering together, and um, they're realizing because they casted lots, which was like this ancient practice, it's almost kind of like a lottery to get an answer to a question. So they cast lots, and it lands on Jonah, and they're like grilling Jonah like with all of these questions. They lob these questions at him. And these questions are not intended to get to know him. Kind of like small talk at a party, like, oh, what do you do? Where are you from? Like, no, that's not what was happening here. See, in this time, in this context, gods were localized. Every god belonged to a people. They belonged to a tribe, right? There, there wasn't a god of all people like the god of the Old Testament, right? Gods belonged to different tribes. They belonged to different nations. They belonged to different um, locations. And they also belonged to different uh, vocations, actually. So there'd be a god of the blacksmiths, the god of the woodworkers, right? Now, today, um, we don't have that. We don't have a God of the accountants and a God of the bus drivers and a God of the electricians and a God of Nassau County and a God of Queens. No, we don't have that. However, this, these questions are really fundamental identity questions, which, which they were asking Jonah. They were trying to get to the bottom of who he worshipped, right? And what we see, and once again, you have to remember, this is a prophetic text. This is a prophetic text. So it's a historical text. But it's also a prophetic text. It's in the Minor Prophets. And so all of these details are presented intentionally. We see that Jonah's asked five questions. 
And he doesn't answer the first four, and he answers the last one first. And he answers the last one first before he answers about the God that he actually worships. I'm gonna expl- let, me, let me explain that. So Jonah's asked these questions, and, and his first response is not, I worship God, the Lord, Yahweh, right? His first response is, I am a Hebrew. And then his second response is, and I worship God, right? And so what a lot of commentators say is that actually this was a signifier that Jonah's identity was not primarily in the God that he worshipped. His identity was in, the, was in his ethnic tribe, was in the fact that he was a Hebrew, right? And, and in fact, there was almost this, this tension where, um, where there, maybe he thought, well, you know, well, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, so of course I, I worship I worship the Lord. Kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm 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 Scandinavian, so of course I'm I'm Lutheran or whatever. You know, like 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 his ethnicity was was almost like tied to his religion. It wasn't a personal religion. It wasn't a personal relationship with God that he had processed yet. It was almost kind of handed down to him. Some commentators say that, but I think the most important thing that we have to get here is that Jonah's identity was not primarily in the Lord. It was in his ethnicity. And we could trade that for occupation. We could trade that for family. We could trade that for a whole bunch of things. But let me show you where the rubber hits the road on this. When Jonah's primary identity, which was his ethnicity, and his identity in the Lord came into tension with each other, he disobeyed God. You see that? So, so he was a prophet, yeah, but, but when Jonah, but, but when his primary identity was attacked, when this command that God gave to him challenged where he truly found his identity, he disobeyed God. So let me ask you, when obedience to God comes into tension with what other people think about you, do you disobey God? When, di- when obedience to God comes into tension with your job, do you disobey God? When obedience to God comes into tension with, with fear of loneliness, you disobey God, right? And so here we're really starting to get to the bottom, right, of the core of where Jonah was at. And we see that his disobedience was, was an idolatry issue, right? And, and for us, we need to see that a lot of the ways that we're disobedient to God are not we focus on like the disobedience, but that's actually the branch to this root, which is actually this core place where we've traded our identity in Christ for our identity in something else, right? And so, um, yeah, so it's tempting. It's really tempting for us when we feel afraid of insignificance, um, when we feel discouraged, to run to these things other than God for our affirmation or for our comfort, right? And, 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 and it's almost like a little lifesaver, right? But it's a false lifesaver because none of these identities can bear the freight of your soul. None of these identities could bear the freight of who you are as a human being. You were created not for your job. You were not created for your family, as weird as that sounds. You were created to serve and love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And all of those other things will flourish if that comes first. But if those other things come first, that's when we begin to experience the stress, the anxiety, the weight of our identity, of our whole being resting on something that is not eternal, right? 
So, um, so fear, it distorted his view of God. It distorted his view of others. It distorted his view of self. Um, and um, as we wrap up, um, we don't get to see this week, tune in next week to see what happens to Jonah in the middle of the storm. We don't see the storm resolve. He's still in the middle of the storm. Um, but my question for you guys is, is where are you at? Are you in the middle of a storm? Are you in the middle of a storm when it comes to, to some of these things? Are you in the middle, are you experiencing fear and a storm when it comes to your relationship with God? <clears throat> Do you feel like you've sinned one too many times and now you are way beyond God's grace? Are you experiencing the fear, the brokenness, the fear of judgment that, that comes from, from not truly having the mercy of the gospel and Jesus Christ rest in your heart? Right? Can you see that the, uh, the, the vaccination to that, the, the healing of that, is, is the gospel? It's Jesus. It's, it's Jesus becoming a man and dying for you and raising again. You know, are you experiencing a fear when it comes to others, you know, has that fear maybe turned into hatred? Are you experiencing brokenness in personal relationships? Are you experiencing hatred for people different than you or, pe- or your enemies, right? Can you see that the gospel, the gospel, when, when, we tr- when we truly see that we have never been wronged in a way that's larger than the way that we have wronged God, and yet God has chosen mercy, can you see how that could give you the power to have forgiveness and reconciliation? Can you see the power that that, that that has the ability to heal us, right? The toxicity between groups of people, right? That even people that, that we disagree with or people that are different than us, they're not beyond the pale. They're made in God's image, right? And that mercy can empower us to reconciliation. Are you in the middle of a storm where you're not really sure who you are anymore? And you've rested your hope in all of these different identities, but they've all let you down, right? Can you see that available to us in the gospel is a new identity as a child of God, an identity that's indestructible, an identity that's not fragile, an identity that could carry us through the deepest storms? See, look, um, you need to see in all of these fears and all of these storms that God is with you. You need to see that God is with you. Because there was a group of disciples thousands after this, 2,000 years ago, there was a group of disciples who were also going through a storm, who were also extremely afraid. And there was someone else who was at the sleep at the bottom of a boat. Right? In Mark 4, we see that there were these disciples that were on a boat with Jesus Christ. And just like Jonah was asleep at the bottom of the boat, Jesus was asleep at the bottom of a ship during a really bad storm. And these disciples, they thought they were with Jesus Christ, this great miracle worker, this great teacher who cared so much about them. And all of a sudden, they started to doubt who Jesus was. And they said, don't you care that we're going to die? And they're in the middle of this storm, and the, boss, the boat is getting tossed to and fro, right? And, um, and, and Jesus gets up. And in the same way that we're going to see next week, that Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament. And with one word, he stops the storm, Right? And for us to experience courage, for us to overcome our fear, it's not a matter of us mustering up more courage. It's a matter of recognizing who's on the boat with you in the middle of the storm. Do you see that Jesus is with you? Do you see that God's presence is eternally and unconditionally 
with you, filled with love. You are fully loved and fully known in the gospel. And that's enough to withstand, that's enough resources to withstand any storm. Because, look, facing these idols, facing this distortion, facing um, obedience actually is fearful. It can be scary. But there is a confidence that's available that was to Jonah. There's a confidence that's available to us that God will be with us, fully known, fully loved through all these storms. I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads as we pray. Father God,